Has something in the Bible ever kept you up at night? Have questions of your faith ever driven you crazy? How many hairs do I have? What did God do on his day off? Have you ever had a question you were just too afraid to ask? Will my dog go to heaven? Where do babies come from? When a bell rings, do angels really get wings? Well, now all your questions will be answered with America's favorite church game. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to... Stop the Pastor! With your host, the beacon of the Bible, the guru of the gospel, he puts the attitude in the Beatitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Hall! That applause never gets old. I love that there. There you go. Hey, it's good to see you guys this morning, and let's dive right into our first question. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I have no clue. <laughs> did they play baseball in the Bible? Yes, they did. In the beginning, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, Cain, Cain struck out Abel, and the prodigal son came home. <laughs> How about tennis? Did they play tennis in the Bible? Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. All right, all right, all right. What do we have? What do we have that Adam and Eve did not have? Ancestors. And my favorite, what did Adam say when his children asked why they couldn't live in the Garden of Eden? Your mother ate us out of house and home. All right, there you go. Those are bad, bad, bad. If this is your first time here, at Renaissance, we don't do this every week. But it's near the end of the summer, it's Labor Day weekend, and so we thought we'd do things uh, just a little bit differently this morning. And if it is your first time here, we're really happy that you're here. My name is Clay, I actually am one of the pastors here, and uh, we are just glad to have you here. And we'd love for you to stop by our guest center on your way out, and say hi to the folks there, and they would love to answer any questions that you have. And i give you a little bit of a, of a gift there as well. So earlier this summer, you guys submitted a whole bunch of questions, and it was great. I was able to read through those, and we kind of selected uh, just a representative sample of those. And last week, the questions that we dealt with were a little bit more emotionally challenging, questions like, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And it was a you know, pretty intense kind of a week there. This week, our focus is a little bit more on some of the more intellectually oriented questions like, you know, did, uh, you know, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or something? Somebody asked me that one uh, after, the first, uh, after one of the services there. So that's a great question. We'll find out when we get to heaven the answer to that question. So there you go. Um, but so this week, we're going to answer a, a number of different questions as well. And the first one that I want us to take a look at is... Can you explain the Renaissance logo to us? Which I thought was actually a really good question. So here's our Renaissance logo. Can I explain that logo? Well, there are a number of different theories that are floating around. The first of which is that it has something to do <laughs> with golf. And if you have ever been around Renaissance for any length of time, you'll understand why there are some people who think the logo has something to do with golf. It does not. How about this? Some people think that the little curve looks a little bit like a mustache. No, don't think so. How about this one here? 
Is it the Obama campaign logo? In case there's anybody from the IRS, we are apolitical. We do not support one party over the other. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Obama campaign logo, nor does it have anything to do with Mr. Potato Head. So what I decided to do, rather than trying to uh, explain it myself, I decided to ask somebody who actually knows what he's talking about when it has to do with the Renaissance logo. So Charlie, why don't you come on up? And Charlie Pollock, if you don't know him, is a pretty amazing guy. He can sing, he can dance, he can do a little Shakespeare, he can play the guitar. He knows what the Renaissance logo is and perhaps what I think is the most amazing thing, we had this uh, Get Fit contest among the Renaissance staff, and Charlie did 101, 101 push-ups without stopping, which I thought was uh, pretty amazing. Before you clap for that, I, I, personally, I, I think the more impressive stat is that I, I planked for five minutes straight, which is the gold standard of planking. Thank you. <laughs> so as we, uh, as we started uh, thinking about redesigning the Renaissance logo, uh, Part of the impetus came because uh, every other organization uh, in, in the world has a, that is named Renaissance has an R as a logo, and we wanted something that was as unique as Renaissance Church, the place. And, uh, and, and as we started thinking about what, what Renaissance Church means and really what that word Renaissance means, we started circling around these ideas of rebirth and renewal. And we knew we wanted uh, whatever image we end up ended up with to be representative, but to also separate us from the idea of the Renaissance, like, you know, like Michelangelo and Renaissance fairs and things like that. And so as we started thinking about this idea of, of rebirth and renewal, we had the advantage of, uh, of trying to come up with a, an image that represented also a church that's been around for 10 years. And what was amazing to us is that the word Renaissance and the people who come to Renaissance who were experiencing renaissances in their lives, in their relationships with God. Uh, maybe they had been at church before and were rediscovering uh, God for the first time, or they were feeling rebirth and renewal from a new relationship with Christ. We were like, well, this is a really powerful idea. So how do we capture that? And we, a lot of different images sort of uh, popped around, but then the, the idea of a sunrise is, of course, a really powerful image of rebirth, renewal, restart. But this being Renaissance, we knew we couldn't just throw a sunrise up. We had to find a way to make it cool and interesting and unique, and we take art very seriously, so arty. So then we, uh, we came up with this. This is our abstraction of a sunrise that represents rebirth and renewal, uh, which uh, is everything that Renaissance is about reconnecting, uh, finding hope again. So there you go. Thanks, Charlie. Isn't that great? You, you know, one of the things that I think is, is uh, so cool about being able to be here at Renaissance is the intentionality, you know, where the logo has meaning there and really relates to uh, the core of our faith and the idea of God rescuing us and renewing us uh, because of what Jesus has done on the cross and the hope that we have with that. So it's, it's, I don't know, I just think it's kind of cool in that way. So our next question that we have for this morning is, how did we get our Bible? How did we get our Bible? And another way that we could ask that question would be, how did the early Christians decide among all of the various writings that were out there, how did they decide which ones 
were authoritative? Which ones should we use to help us to know who God is, who we are, how we can have a relationship with him, and how we ought to live our lives uh, as his children, as his followers? And the popular conception uh, that a lot of people have is that sometime towards the end of the fourth century, a bunch of old white guys got together in a smoke-filled room and they kind of horse traded back and forth and decided, well, I'll give you this book if you'll give me that book. And, you know, they fought it out. And uh, what we ended up with is the table of contents to our Bible. And while it's true that there were some councils in the fourth and the fifth century, uh, that's not really what happened. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And I want to start by going back to the Old Testament and asking the question, how did we end up with the 39 books of the Old Testament? And the first Old Testament books were written in about 1400 BC. So the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. In about 1440 BC, uh, Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. They wandered around the desert for 40 years. And just before, just before the year 1400 or so, they're poised to go into the promised land, the land that God had uh, promised that he was going to give them. And I want to uh, pick up a verse here from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Uh, it says, after Moses finished writing the book, the words of this law from beginning to end, God had given them the law. He gave them this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So what was going on there is Moses had just finished writing down what God had told him to write, and this is what we know as the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book in the Old Testament. So Moses said, take this book of Deuteronomy, put it right next to the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was a central part of Israel's worship, and inside of it there were uh, certain key objects that reminded them of God's faithfulness, his power, and his glory. And Moses said, take this book that I've just written for you, put it right next to the ark in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent that was the focal point of the worship of the Israelites in those early days. And later on, it was transformed into the temple when they had a permanent location. And so what happened over the next thousand years or so is when the Israelites received a new writing that they understood to be from God, usually because it was given to them by a prophet, they would take that writing and they would collect it, and for the most part they would keep it in the temple along with the book of Genesis and Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy and really what was uh, to become the entire Old Testament. So over a thousand years or so, uh, the people of Israel collected these authoritative writings. And so when we come to the time of Christ, they had, depending on how you count it, 22 or 24 different authoritative books. And so Jesus and the apostles used what would be considered the Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. They used that as their Bible. Now, we have 39 books today, and they had 22 or 24, and the difference is that it's actually all the same books. They're just broken up differently. So, for example, we have First and Second Samuel. They just had Samuel. It was just one book together. We have First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and again, 
each of those was broken up into two different books. And so essentially, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used is identical to the Old Testament that we have today. Again, the only difference is how the books were broken up, and some of them were ordered a little bit differently. Our last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, the last book in the Jewish Old Testament, or they wouldn't call it the Old Testament, but the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures would be the book of Chronicles, or Second Chronicles, if you, if you look at it uh, the way we might look at it. So essentially, Jesus and the apostles were using what we know to be the Old Testament. And so the early church just simply adopted that, and that's how they got the first 39 of the 66 books in our Bible. The New Testament uh, was compiled in a somewhat similar way, but there was a key difference, and, and that is if you think back to the nation of Israel, everything's centralized. They're in one location. They've got one temple where they're able to collect uh, you know, the authoritative writings. The New Testament church is spread out over hundreds and really uh, thousands of miles, and so there isn't a centralized location. There isn't a centralized authority structure so it took longer for the books to be recognized as authoritative because they had to be passed around. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have the printing press. They couldn't order things on Amazon.com to get a different you know, copy of whatever it was. And so, uh, for example, if you think of, let's use the book of Ephesians as a good example. That was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And if you look at uh, the original Greek, it actually says something like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church at, and then there's a blank. Because the intent was that that letter was going to be circulated among different churches. And the, the main copy that we have today was one that came from Ephesus. But after Ephesus, it might have gone to Thessalonica or Laodicea or Philadelphia or one of the other locations there uh, throughout the world at that time because they, they passed them around, distributed them around, so that people could read them and get an idea of what God was writing to them. In, in the book of Acts, we actually read, in Acts chapter 2, it says, they devoted themselves, this is the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that idea of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching is essentially they're asking themselves what are the authoritative writings? What is the authoritative teaching for us as Christians? And for the most part, that would come from the apostles. And they're asking questions like, is this reflective of what Jesus taught? So, for example, with, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew. Is Matthew writing accurately about what Jesus said and about what Jesus did? Well, yes. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was with him on a daily basis. So he's going to give us, they're asking, he's going to give us an accurate record of what Jesus had to say. Someone else might say, well, what about the book of Romans? I hadn't heard that there was a book of Romans. Oh, well, you've got it, and you've got it, and you've got it. Oh, well, let me take a look at it. And they see it, they look at it, and they're like, yeah, this does seem to be an accurate representation, etc." And so they over a period of time, in an organic way, they came to recognize what we would understand to be the 27 books of the New Testament as the authoritative writings that would be added to the 39 books 
of the Old Testament, and this became what we know as the 66 books of our Bible. And so when the councils met in the 4th century and a little bit afterwards, they weren't sitting there horse trading back and forth, I'll give you Romans if you give me Galatians, and I'll give you Matthew if you give me John. Rather, what they're doing is talking about what has been the consensus that has been being built over the past several centuries as to which are the authoritative writings. So they're really more recognizing a consensus that had already been achieved than sitting there making a decree and trying to decide which books should be in the table of contents. And so we, 2,000 years later, are the recipients of this, and God has preserved for us these 66 books of the Bible so that we can know who he is, who we are, what our relationship is with him, how we can live our lives as followers of Christ, how we relate to one another and to the world around us, and, and on and, and on and on and on. And we have a privilege, really, as God's people to be people of this book, to be people of the Bible, to read it, to study it, to try to understand it. That's why our messages on Sunday mornings are so focused on the Bible, because that's what we believe to be God's authoritative writings for us and it helps us to get to know him better and to know how we live our lives as his followers and so my encouragement to you is really take the time make regular time to be reading the bible to be studying it to be understanding it ask questions of it and try to get a better understanding of who god is and how we have a relationship with him which brings us to the next question do we have to obey the old testament law do we have to obey the Old Testament law? Questions like, do we have to keep the Sabbath? Do we have to tithe? You know, and so on. And the, the short answer to that is no, but. No, we don't have to, but. And I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But I want to use an analogy for just a minute. Imagine if I were to move from the United States to Canada, just uh, you know, several hundred miles north, and go live somewhere in Canada. Would I have to obey U.S. law while I'm living in Canada? No, I wouldn't have to obey U.S. law. I'd have to obey Canadian law because I'm not living in the United States anymore. I'm living in Canada. So then since I don't have to obey U.S. law anymore, it's okay to murder, right? It's okay to steal. It's okay to lie. It's okay to cheat. It's okay to... Well, no, it's not because the moral foundation of Canadian law is essentially the same as the moral foundation of United States law. So murder is wrong in the United States, it's wrong in Canada. Stealing is wrong in the United States, it's wrong in Canada, and so on. So do I have to obey United States law when I'm living in Canada? No, I obey Canadian law, but for the most part, it's gonna look the same. Now, some of the holidays are a little bit different. I'd have to learn how to spell Labor Day with a U, you know, so that I could get used to that. Uh, I'd have to learn how to celebrate Thanksgiving in October, I guess, because the ground has been frozen 20 feet deep by the time you hit November, so they couldn't do it there. Uh, anybody know in Canada what they do on December 26th, what that's called? Boxing Day, yeah. And it turns out it has absolutely nothing to do with fighting. That's what they have hockey for. It has to do with, uh, has to do with returning presents that you didn't want. And here's the one that's, that's actually the most unusual. This one took me a little while to figure out. Do you know that in Canada, they celebrate the 4th of July on July 1st? 
but they don't call it Independence Day. They call it Canada Day because they're not really totally independent of Great Britain yet. They're still into, you know, the British monarchy and, and that kind of thing. But we are too because think of people like Princess Diana and, you know, Catherine who, Duchess of Cambridge, if you know, Kate Middleton, you know. So we get all excited about the British uh, royalty as well. But there are some differences. There are some similarities. But essentially... The moral foundation of Canadian law is the same as the moral foundation of United States law. And so, similarly, the moral foundation of the New Testament is essentially the same as the moral foundation of the Old Testament. So while we're not under the Old Testament law, we're going to live very much in a very similar way. Take a look at what the Apostle Paul says here in the book of Romans. He says, but now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. We've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we're not under the Old Testament law, but we're still going to follow the spirit of it. Take a look at what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He's talking about things that are talked about in the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a, a word for fool or idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, again in the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, you can murder physically, but you can also murder in your heart. And you can commit adultery, adultery physically, but you can also commit adultery in your heart. And he's saying the, the, the point is we shouldn't be legalistic and say, well, I didn't actually kill anybody. I just hated them. He's saying, no, you violated that command as well. Why? Because the spirit of it, because it's focused on the character of God. And so that we still should not murder as followers of Jesus today, nor should we hate. We need to follow the spirit of the law, understanding what's going on there. And Jesus actually expands on this a little bit in Matthew chapter 22. And he says, uh, when someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he says, if you're loving God and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're essentially keeping the, the, the moral part of the Old Testament law because all of the Old Testament law hangs on these two commandments. Love God and love people. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And when you look at the New Testament, it absolutely says we need to love God. And we need to love people. We need to love others as we love ourselves. So if we're doing that, are we going to be living in conformity with God's character? Absolutely. So when we ask the question, do we have to obey the Old Testament law? No, but we're going to if we're going to love God and we love others. And so if we get to, uh, to say some of the, the very practical questions they're asked, and a couple of, of you sent in questions, do we have to tithe? Do we have to keep the Sabbath? Do we have to tithe? No. We don't have to give 10% of our income. 
that was a command that was given to the Old Testament people of Israel. Do we have to tithe? No. Do we get to give? Do we get to participate in what God is doing? Absolutely. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that we ought to give generously. We ought to give cheerfully. We ought to want to give out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Sing in the song, all of it yours, Lord. We ought to give because we want to participate in the work that God is doing here on the earth through his organizations like Renaissance and, and other churches around the world. So do we have to give 10%? No, some of us may give 2%. Some of us may give 5 Some may give 10 Some may give 15 or 20% or more. And I have some friends who have given up to 50% of their income at various times in their lives. So legalistically, do we have to tithe? No. But we get to participate by giving of our income. We get to participate in what God's doing. So it's a privilege rather than an obligation. It's something we should do cheerfully rather than out of guilt. Same thing's true with the Sabbath. Do we have to keep the Sabbath? No, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. But we're foolish if we don't take time out to rest. That's what Labor Day is about. Even our country recognizes that. And if you think back to the history of why God gave the, the people of Israel the Sabbath, one of the reasons, and there were several, but one of the reasons he gave them the Sabbath was to remind them that they had once been slaves in Egypt where they had to work seven days a week, 365 days a year. And essentially, the only time they got to rest was when they were dead, you know, and they were slaves. And now they're free, and they're free to rest. And so that Sabbath was a once every seven day rest period and reminder that God had freed them from slavery in Egypt. And so we don't have to keep the Sabbath, but we're free to do so. And taking time to rest, to recuperate, to recover, to focus on God, to take our minds off what we're doing the other six days of the week, to spend time with our family, to do things that we enjoy. It shouldn't be a chore. It shouldn't be a duty. It should be a privilege that we have. So do we have to keep the Old Testament law? No. But if we're followers of Jesus, we're going to love God, we're going to love people, and we're going to have a much better understanding of what the character of God is like and how he wants us to live in light of that if we have an understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament. Next question. What do we know about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Great question. I don't know how many times I've had folks ask that question. What do we know about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Well, we know that Jesus had at least four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. And I, for those of you who uh, Christianity is pretty new to you, uh, when I say half-brothers and half-sisters, what I'm referring to is uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the son of Mary and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So a miraculous conception for Jesus. His brothers and sisters were conceived in the normal way. They were children of Joseph and Mary. So Jesus is fully divine. He's fully human. His brothers and sisters were not divine. They were just fully human. So that's why they would be viewed as his half-brothers and, and half-sisters. Matthew chapter 13 talks about this a little bit. It says, Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? 
And aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Think about this. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? You can't blame anything on him because he never does anything wrong, right? And is it any surprise that James and uh, Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, they didn't believe that he was God. They didn't believe that he was, the, they're probably saying, who does he think he is, the Messiah? I mean, come on, he's, you know, he's just our older brother here, right? You'd expect that they would not believe in him. And in fact, the New Testament tells us very clearly, they didn't believe in him. They didn't think he was anything special. And that's what, what Matthew is saying here. You know, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And those of you, you know, who grew up with, with siblings or have multiple children, you know that the appreciation for one another is not always there. And other people have a greater appreciation for you and your talents and your abilities and for who you are, uh, sometimes a greater appreciation than your own family members do. And in fact, in the book of Mark, you've got a situation where uh, Jesus' family actually thought he was nuts. And uh, they, they said, he's out of his mind. We've got to take him home and give him some time to rest, you know, because something's going on here. So during Jesus' life on earth, his mother Mary, she got it. She understood who he was. But all the rest of the family, they didn't realize who he was. But when you get to the time of the resurrection, and early on in the book of Acts, which is really detailing the time from Jesus' resurrection on through uh, the beginning of the of early Christianity in, in New Testament times, we find that his brothers did believe in him. They came to faith. They came to recognize their brother as their Lord and Savior. And it's a pretty amazing thing to think about that transformation. And what's interesting to, to watch, historically speaking, is that James, uh, one of Jesus' brothers, actually became the key leader in the first part of, the, uh, of the, the New Testament church. We think more of Peter and Paul because they wrote more and they're more uh, well-known, but James was actually the first key leader. And when Paul, when the person we know as the Apostle Paul, came to faith in Jesus, one of the first things that he did, he went up to Jerusalem where James was one of the key leaders, and he went to James and he wanted to check out with James to make sure that he, Paul, was properly understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus has taught. He wanted to make sure that he had a proper understanding of the message of Jesus. And then sometime later, a few decades later, James wrote what we know as the book of James. And so one of the books in the New Testament was written by Jesus' brother James, who for a period of time thought that his older brother was nuts. Another book in the New Testament, what we know is Jude, was written by the man named Judas, not, the, not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, but Jesus' brother, Judas, or could be translated differently as Jude. So two of the New Testament books were written by Jesus' brothers. And one of the things that I think is so cool about that and what God was doing is seeing that it took them some time to come to faith in Jesus. And in fact, if you follow along with the disciples, with people like Matthew and John and Bartholomew, and Thaddeus, and, you know, and on and on. If you follow them through in the New Testament, you see that for them, 
following Jesus was a process. Spiritual growth was a process for them. And there were ups and there were downs. And ultimately, yeah, the direction was up and to the right. But there were setbacks and there were questions and there were doubts and there were fears. You've got Peter denying Jesus just before the crucifixion. Did he stop believing in Jesus? No, but he was afraid for his life. And so he had challenges at that point, yet Jesus forgave him. And so for us, when we ask ourselves, okay, how does this make a difference in our lives today? Spiritual growth is a process. And so whether you're at the stage where maybe like Jesus' brothers growing up, you know, you're curious, you know something's different about him, but I don't know that he's God and I don't know that he's the Messiah yet, but I want to know more about him. Okay, that's where you are today. Take a next step. Ask some questions. Find out more about who Jesus is. Get to know him better. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20 or more years. All of us still are in the process of growing spiritually, of getting to know God better, of getting to, to grow in our relationship with him. And my encouragement to all of us, and, and I have to keep reminding myself about this as well, we need to embrace the process. Spiritual growth is a process that we need to embrace. And one great next step, if you haven't done this already, let me encourage you to sign up for the project. The project is something we've talked about a, a number of times this summer, and we're going to be talking about it more as we get a little bit into the fall. The project is a four-week discussion-oriented opportunity where we really have a conversation about questions like, who is God? Who are we as human beings? What's our relationship with God? Why is the world not now the way that God created it to be? What is my need as a human being? What's my deepest need as a human being? Who is Jesus? What is he doing about my need? How can I have a relationship with him? How can I live my life in relationship with other people around me? And, and questions like these, great opportunity for you, whether you're just starting out in your faith journey, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for decades, the folks who have been through it, maybe 150 or so have been through it already, uh, folks are over and over again saying, hey, this was helpful to me in the process of spiritual growth. So let me encourage you, our next session starts on Saturday night, October 5th, so about a month from now, and you can sign up online in our website. If you have questions about it, you can ask that at Guest Center or grab me afterwards. I'd love to tell you more about it. So I hope that in these past couple of weeks, we've been able to answer some of your questions. I realize we didn't get to all of them. And I also realize that a number of the questions that we answered, we did pretty quickly because we didn't have time to delve deeply into all of them. So if you feel like you want a deeper answer to one of the questions that we asked, or if you've got a follow-up question, if your question wasn't asked, shoot me an email, uh, grab me afterwards. I'd love to set up a time and talk with you. If you've got some new questions, shoot them in as well because... Who knows, maybe we'll get to have another episode, maybe next summer, of Stump the Pastor. So let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll, we'll close. Father, we are so grateful for the blessing that we have as your children to have the Bible, to have these 66 books that tell us about you, that tell us about us, tell us about how we can have a relationship with you, how we uh, ought to relate to one another, how we ought to live our lives as followers of Jesus. And I pray for myself, I pray for each of us that we would be people of the book, that we would be people who read 
the Bible, who look at it, who study, who meditate on it, and who apply it to our lives. I pray as well that we would be people who embrace this process of spiritual growth. Pray that we would be continually asking ourselves how we can take next steps in our relationship with you. And we thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out today, and I hope that you will on uh, Friday the 13th bring a friend and a bag of non-perishable items to the park here in Summit. Thanks.